the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. This afternoon, we are continuing our series entitled Six M People, exploring six particular expressions of how the life of Christ within us through his spirit can, if we're willing to do our part, of course, bring about positive change in the various places where we live and work. Now, this series returns to many of the ideas that we explored recently in our Frontline Sunday series, and it's a reminder of some of the themes that we thought about some years ago in a series entitled Fruitfulness on the Frontline. Now, if you've had a chance to look at the teaching program for this term, you'll have already discovered the six M's that we're going to consider together over these six weeks. Last Sunday, we considered the theme of fruitfulness. We looked at a familiar passage from Galatians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul encourages his readers to live fruit-filled lives, modelling godly character. This afternoon, we're going to consider the second of the six M's, that of making good work. But before we read a few passages of scripture together, we're going to watch another short film showing a lived example of what it looks like to be 6M people in the everyday experiences of people's lives. Today, we're going to hear Sunil's story. In the Walt Disney classic film Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, there is an instantly recognisable catchy tune that we're all familiar with. Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. The movie was made in America towards the end of the Great Depression of the 1930s, and as such, it's an interesting reflection of that period. It was a time when millions of Americans were out of work, unemployment rates were sky high, there was very little paid work available, and as a result, many people lacked a sense of personal value. No wonder, then, that the song goes on to express such a joyful delight in making good work. But the workplace isn't necessarily where people find joyful fulfilment marked by happy whistling. For many, the parody of the Seven Dwarfs song, as shown in Gary Varvel's 2020 pandemic cartoon, I O, I O, It's Back to Work We Go, carries a much more realistic message. For many, work is simply the means through which bills can be met. There is little or no sense of fulfilment or purpose. So which is it then? Is work a chore or a privilege? Is it a curse or a blessing? For those advocating the former, the opening chapters of the Bible provides the context. Humankind's sinful rebellion against God the Creator resulted in much being lost. God's best was no longer achievable. Paradise was lost. God's words of judgment in Genesis chapter 3 appear to give good evidence that the resultant fallout from the fall made work a chore and a curse. God says this, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since From it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Such a reading of scripture suggests that work is indeed a curse, and a direct result of living in a fallen world. But that is a faulty interpretation, which doesn't take account of the whole of Genesis chapters 1-3, to or, in fact, the entirety of scripture. It's a wrong foundation on which to build an understanding of life, 
because it doesn't take into account God's character, God's command and God's call. Three things that we're going to look at briefly uh, from the early part of the Bible this afternoon. Firstly then, God's character. Now if you were to ask a group of friends, what do you find most fulfilling? You would, I am sure, get a mixture of replies. For all of our differences, most of us, I'm sure, experience something like a warm glow of fulfilment that exclaims, well, I really enjoyed that. That reaction is, of course, an echo of the truth that we were all created in God's image. The book of Genesis records that God takes great delight in creation. In Genesis chapter 1, we read, God saw all that he had made and it was good. That's Genesis 1 verse 31. The writer of Genesis offers us an image of an artist working intensely on a canvas and then standing back to take in the masterpiece with a feeling of satisfaction and achievement. God is by nature creative, a workman. I wonder how often you've been able to spot people from the same family through noticing that they look alike. In truth, of course, looking alike isn't the only way we spot familial links. Sometimes we spot mannerisms or gestures or facial expressions. Likeness is revealed in a variety of ways. In a similar way, God's likeness is imprinted in all of us. Genesis chapter 1, again verses 26 to 27. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And as the writer reveals, as well as sharing something of God's likeness, we are called to work within God's creation. So rather than being a curse or a chore, work, however we choose to define it, is a high and holy calling. King David, writing in the Psalms, recognises this. He says, What are mere mortals that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. In all of the current debates about our world and its resources, the threats to the environment, the protection of species, and the effects of climate change, the Bible has something foundational to say. It is God's world before it is our world. We are stewards and guardians entrusted to look after something that belongs to someone other than ourselves. And when we see the world through that filter, everything takes on a different hue, including what we do, our work, whatever form that may take. And we hear a lot about human rights, and it's an important matter, of course, especially in those parts of the global community, where justice is so evidently lacking. But there is another side to the coin, that of human responsibility. Jesus sums it up for us. In a response to a question from a representative of the ruling religious elite in Matthew 22, we read these words. One of them, that is a Pharisee, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. 
Now, before we move on to consider the second point, that of God's command, I'd like to share a story. The great Renaissance painter, Leonardo da Vinci, who, having almost completed a painting on which he had been working for months, turned to a group of students who had been quietly watching him work. The painting was almost complete, but rather than applying the finishing brush strokes to the painting himself, he handed the brush to one of his students, along with a very simple instruction. Finish it. The astonished student protested, but I don't have your talent. I'm not worthy to do what you've asked. Da Vinci replied, Will not what I have done inspire you to do your best? Secondly then, let's move on. Let's think about God's command. The Genesis story reveals two basic instructions. Firstly, we are called to be fruitful which is what we thought about last Sunday from Genesis 1.28. And secondly, we're called to be useful. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Mark Green in his book, Thank God It's Monday, says this, Adam was not given a deck chair and a parasol, but a shovel and a rake. And it's important to notice that the instruction from God to be useful in Genesis 2 verse 15 occurs before the devastating effects of the fall as described in chapter 3. The command needs to be seen as an expression of the privileged position of stewardship that God invites us to step into, a role of partnership with him and with one another to make good work. It's a creation gift, not a curse. It's a living definition of what it means to be human. Lastly then, let's consider something of God's call. Now, aren't we glad that the Bible doesn't stop at Genesis chapter 3, but instead it goes on to spell out a wonderful story of grace and forgiveness. The overarching theme of the Bible is the story of how lost people can be found. And we see that big theme played out in a multiplicity of ways. We hear about salvation being made whole. We hear about redemption being released from slavery. We hear about atonement being renewed to a right relationship with God. We hear about sanctification, that of being equipped through the indwelling Spirit of God to represent Christ in every area of our lives. And these themes are huge, and each and every one of them impacts upon the way that we set about making good work. I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about what the missing years of Jesus' life might have been like. The Gospel records are particularly silent. They have nothing to say about the 30 years he lived in relative obscurity in an unglamorous small community close to the Sea of Galilee. Jesus followed in his earthly father's footsteps, working in the family carpenter's shop. I'd imagine his customers were farmers and tradesmen, some of which didn't pay their bills on time. He knew what it was like to work hard. He knew what it was like to be tired at the end of a busy day. He knew what it was like to hit his thumb with a hammer as well as to know the satisfaction of a job well done. So often we get caught up with the divinity of Christ that we neglect to consider the very ordinariness of his day-to-day work. William Barclay frames the very ordinariness of Christ into a helpful prayer. This is what he writes. O God, our Father, we remember how the eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us. We thank you that Jesus did a day's work like each one of us 
that he knew the problem of living together in a family, that he knew the frustration and irritation of serving the public, that he had to earn a living and face all the wearing routine of everyday work and life and living. And so, clothe each common task with glory. I'd like to, to set a challenge for each of us. I'd like us to stop demeaning the things that we do in our everyday lives. To do that, we need to consciously delete the prefix just. I wonder how many times you've heard someone say, when perhaps you've asked them what they do, well, I'm just a stay-at-home mum, or I just serve on the checkout, or I just volunteer at the local food bank. There's no just about it since everything we put our hand to is an opportunity to reflect God's call upon our lives to represent him through our attitudes and our actions. And it's this very thing, I think, that Paul seeks to address in the passage from Colossians that is mentioned on the teaching program against today's topic. At first glance, Paul's comments in Colossians 3, 23 appear to belong to a different era than our own. And as such, Perhaps we think they have little to say to us. But I'm not sure that's the case. Clearly, of course, we have to be careful not to simply transpose the terms slaves and masters with employees and employers, because that would make little or no sense. However, there is something really crucial in what Paul has to say about all of our attitudes towards the work that each of us are engaged in, whether it be paid or not. Paul writes in a section of his letter that's all about how we are called to live out the good news of Christ in the everyday situations we encounter. He says this, Colossians 3, uh, verses 22 to 24. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Work, says Paul, is a spiritual issue. It's an act of worship and part of the way that we offer to God the totality of our lives. Work isn't a separate compartment from faith. It is instead one way in which faith works itself out in life. As Christians, of course, we live in the reality of a fallen world with all of its implications. Implications that affect our attitude to work and the things that are done. And yet at the same time, we are called to redeem work. Mark Green again, who authored the book Fruitfulness on the Frontline, which birthed the 6M theme that we're considering, wrote this. Work is not an intermission from the main action, something to do so that we can then do other things, it is an integral part of the main action, an intrinsic part of our walk with God. But practicing something of the presence of God in our workplace doesn't always come naturally for us. In part, I think, that's because we make one crucial mistake. David Pryor, the director of the Centre of Marketplace Theology, says this. We think about taking God to work with us, whereas in fact... He is already there. Maybe we take the view that God needs an introduction from us to the workplace, but that's not true. God is the one who sends us into the workplace and who meets us there when we arrive. During our morning 
series this term, the cost of living, we're looking at Romans chapter 12. The opening verse has been on our teaching program since the beginning of the year, in fact, if you've noticed it. And it's not that we've set this particular verse as a theme for the year, but rather its significance and influence has slowly permeated into a lot of what we've been teaching and thinking about since January. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of Scripture, The Message, renders the first two verses of Romans chapter 12 like this. And with this, we'll finish. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognise what he wants from you and quickly respond to it, unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. May that be the case for all of us.